Lord, thank you again for this morning. We thank you for the life that you've given us. And Lord, as we look at your word, and as you uh, call us to consider these things, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear from you, to receive from you, to be encouraged, Lord, by your word and what you have for us, to recognize your goodness in our lives. Lord, would you um, call us, Lord, more deeply into life with you, we pray. In your name this morning, amen. I am not one much of one for New Year's resolutions, but I sort of had a New Year's emphasis this year. See, resolution makes it feel if you don't do it, somehow you did it wrong, right? <laughs> so it's sort of a New Year's emphasis. It's a thing I'll try and do, and if I don't do it, it's okay. Anyway, I decided um, I wanted to read more. And for those of you that probably know me or know me from when I was young, I used to read all the time, and I still do read fairly often, but sometimes with, like, you know when you have kids and your life changes? That happened, and um, now, now the time you have to do things changes. Like, no one told me, right? Have kids. It's brilliant, and it is. And then suddenly you're like, all this stuff I used to do, I don't have time for. Sarah and I think about the time we didn't have kids. I'm like, what were we doing with our lives? We could have been learning a language, probably could have, like, taken classes. We just sat on the couch and watched something on TV. Like, what were we doing? We went out for supper and never had to think about it. Good grief. Those of you who don't have kids and are young, you don't know the blessing, the gift you have, the sheer gift. So just go learn French if you want to. You have the time. Anyway, there's gift in other ways once you have kids. So I said, I want to read more. And so I, I made a goal to read a book a week. And uh, I'm on my way. And, but to do that, I had to actually make time. <laughs> sounds so ridiculous, like, of course. But I had to make time, intentionally set aside time to do it. I mean, I do a little bit, well, like, I can listen to books when I'm washing dishes and stuff, right? But then, like, in the evening, when I could do something else, I can choose instead to read. And I try. And it's, it's coming. It's coming. Um, I have to intentionally set aside the time to do it. And I, it made me think about this passage where Jesus says, Early on here, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break into steel, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The idea being you can decide to invest in eternity or in something not great, right? You can choose what to spend your time on, basically. You can choose what kind of activities are going to be central to your life. And how you spend your time, moreover, indicates what's important to you. I don't know if you've thought about that. You can get, a, you can get some of your, our, our smart devices can tell you how much screen time you have, and it's just depressing, right? Oh, my gosh. I spend way too much time on my phone. just want to smash it. I talk about this. This is the second week in a row I've talked about destroying my phone. Something going on in my heart, clearly. But anyway, how we spend our time indicates what's important to us. That's what's going on in these first three verses here. It's the same in our Christian lives. If we say... I want to be a disciple of Jesus, I want to follow him, then we need to take the time to spend with him. We need to intentionally invest in that relationship. It's something we choose to do. And it, it takes time, I think, to learn the ways of living in the kingdom of heaven. It's not something that just instantly happens, but there's life that we lean into. We grow. There's a, a walk of spiritual formation that goes on. All the ways we're called to live in Christ. And here Jesus is getting to this question, 
How do you prioritize your time? What marks your days? What's the thing that you go to do? And is it a helpful thing? It can be a, I mean, I read all kinds of books, right? But there's something life-giving in me taking the time to read. Or put another way, what treasure do you invest in? And this is paired with another thought later in the passage, the thought of who really is your master? Who are you going to serve, right? And who you serve will determine your outlook on life. And that's where he gets to with the lilies and the, and the sparrows, right? Who you serve will depend and determine how you think about your life. And Jesus' point here is pretty plain. He's just he's basically saying, serve God, follow him, abide in him. And instead of being captivated by worry or anxiety, you can enter into God's invitation to simply trust in him. That's kind of the the thrust of this message. So let's look at verses 19 and 24 to sort of zoom in on that. How do you spend your time? And that first few verses really quite plainly says this. Rather than spending time acquiring stuff, <laughs> acquiring things that will eventually eventually just, you know, moth and rust destroy, eventually this stuff will just break down. We all stuff we, we bought that was new and now it's not new anymore. I remember when I bought my drums for the first time. And my parents were like, yeah, but, you know, they will decrease in value over time. I was like, what do you mean? No, that's not how it works. They get more valuable over time, right? And they're like, no, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Unless they're like some kind of classic relic, you know, and like somehow they never made these again, they're going to decrease in value. I was like, what are you talking about? It's not. How-. Anyway, I was so confused at 15. My poor, my poor hard-earned money going to waste wasn't to waste. It was all good. But the point is we can invest in things Uh, here and now that are only temporary, or we can choose activities that bring long-term joy and love and lasting life. And you can fill fill in the blank, perhaps, on what sort of activities those might be, but they're the sort of things that will involve cultivating a life with God, um, cultivating healthy friendships with our family, uh, with our friends, with our spouses if we're married, something about caring for our families, doing our work well. All of these things are about investing in the life God's given us. Also, finding joy in simplicity, which happens a little later in the passage. Uh, I did read one book I've read this year was uh, Life with God by Richard Foster, uh, who's part of spearheading the Renovare movement, which is all about spiritual formation. And he puts it this way. He said, God is always standing, uh, calling us with the invitation I will dwell with you. Will you come and dwell with me? That's always there. Every time we open the Bible, God is saying, I will dwell with you, but will you come and dwell with me? Will we make the time to be with God? So as I said earlier, I want to read. I have to make the time to read. In the same way, if I want a life with God, a deep life with God, a life with God that's different this year than it was last year or five years ago, I need to choose to spend the time with him and invest in the life he's given me, not sort of squandering it. Now, some of us, we hear things like cultivating the life with God. Doesn't that mean I just go be a monk somewhere, you know? I'm just going to go up on a mountain and be in seclusion. I told Sarah before we had children, I said, if you ever pass away, I'm totally being a hermit. I will go to an island. I will have an old dog. I will have a rocking chair. There'll be a horse, probably. I don't know. He'll just be there. And I will sit, and I will, you know, rock, and just kind of be secluded. I don't want to see anybody. Now we have no, we can't do that. You know, maybe when I'm older and the kids are grown up, maybe we'll, yeah, I'll go just be a monk somewhere together. We can think of that as though I have to sort of remove myself from my daily life, remove myself from daily affairs 
to kind of be with God. But, but when you read the Gospels, people encounter Jesus in their everyday lives, in their kind of day-to-day working lives. This is where God shows up. Every moment of every day is an invitation from God to join him in his life, to turn your day into worship. And so as you're scrubbing floors or as you're it's coming, isn't it? Doing taxes, right? Or changing diapers. I do this often, changing the diapers. One this morning, I had one child. I changed the diaper, passed him off, picked up the next one, put him on, changed the diaper. Noah's still in diapers, of course. He's fighting me the whole time. Just, ah, ah, wants to grab stuff. Will's trying to spin around. I have to keep putting him back, you know, like just stay there. It's, it's really involved. But as we do that, as we, as we love our kids, if you don't have young kids, But as we go about our day-to-day lives, whatever that is, we can do so with a faithfulness unto God and realize that as I am serving others, as I am maybe laying down my own self-interests, my own sinful desires, I'm making moral choices about what matters in my life. I'm, I'm not just trying harder, I'm actually training in the Christian life. And as I do that, I come more and more deeply into life with Christ. Jesus says here, we all, we all have this choice. And in verse 21, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that your is a singular your. It's not sort of your as a whole, you know, our collective, the things we like all together. But you personally, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And the natural question is, well, what's your treasure? What is the thing? that you want to make central in your life, central in your heart. It's a personal call to action. And we have the responsibility to respond to God's invitation, each and every one of us. He wants to be with us, to dwell with us, but will we dwell with him? And even when all around us there's people who don't want to dwell with him, or perhaps we live in a world that has turned itself against him, we are still called personally to respond to that invitation. Will you dwell with me? Will you make every moment of life an act of worship? Will you let your treasure be here in the goodness of life? We all have that choice. And then in verses 22 and 23, Jesus uses this this interesting metaphor of the eye. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. The idea is the eye um, shows forth, it's, it's kind of a weird metaphor, but it shows forth the inner quality of your life. And so it can be light which means it's showing, uh, like it's suggesting a loyal devotion to God is kind of the idea. Or it can be uh, poor. It can be a, a darkness that shines out, which, which shows something of kind of moral corruption. The point, of course, is you, can, you could be physically blind, but be spiritually clear-sighted, right? You could also, you know, be able to see physically, but be spiritually blind, which is often the case with the Pharisees. And Jesus often critiques that, right? They think they know, but they're actually spiritually blind. They're missing out on what God has for them. So the question here, if the first question was, how are you going to spend your time? Here Jesus is saying, what is your inner life? What qualities are present in your life? If they were to shine out, would, it, would we see something life-giving? Or would we see something kind of dark and gloomy and to, you know, whatever it might be? Is it full of light or darkness? What is the quality of your inner life? And those two questions go together. The way you spend your time will cultivate what's happening inside of you. And the last question in verses 24 now, this section about treasure in heaven, he says, who will you serve, God or money? You can't serve two masters, he says, verse 24. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God 
and money. And the point is not that money is somehow inherently evil. The point is it can be misused for evil. And our hearts are really slippery that we can do this without realizing it sometimes. What's interesting, I think, is Jesus personifies money as a potential master, almost in competition with God, right? Competing for our loyalty, competing for our time. How do we spend our time? Someone that we're in service to. Jesus isn't condemning the wealth, but he's, he's saying there's dangers here you need to watch out for. And overall, this whole section, how do you spend your time? What's the inner quality of your life? Who do you serve? All comes back to Christ calling each and every one of us to a wholehearted devotion to himself. God's meant to be first, folks. Not our money, not our possessions, not our hobbies. Put God first. And the joy and the beauty of life and of family and of your work will come along with it. But put him first. Put the kingdom first. And these things will be added in. It echoes Paul's instructions to Timothy here. He says, this is Paul's words, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it. Note this part here. He says, but if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not just money, right? It's the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money, which shows something about a deficiency in your heart that you're trying to satisfy by using money to try and try and fill that gap, fill that hole. In uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, the dwarf Thorin succumbs to a deep sense of greed. They talk, actually, Tolkien describes it as a sickness. And his love of, of hoarded gold leads to all sorts of evil, eventually breaks up a bunch of his friendships, eventually leads to his own death. And he, just like Paul, wanders away, as Paul says here in this part, wanders away from true life and is pierced with many pangs, though quite literally. And in the end, Tolkien, he has Thorin repent, and then Tolkien, uh, Thorin expresses the, the same sort of virtuous life that Paul talks about here. Thorin's, one of his last words to Bilbo are these. He says, if more of us valued food and cheer and song over hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. And so he's, Tolkien's echoing Paul's point, right? Be content with the simple joys of life. Greed for wealth, if we're not careful, if we're not wise, can turn to evil. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. Enjoy the life that God's given us, but don't turn your hearts to accumulating wealth for wealth's sake. And Paul calls Timothy later on, he says this, to live into his faith and calling. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And we're not talking about earning salvation, right? Salvation's the free gift of God and Jesus Christ. Died on the cross for your sins. We receive that by grace through faith in Christ. 
But now having received it, Paul tells us, walk in it, fight the good fight, embrace it. Timothy is saved, he's a Christian, but that's just the start. And Paul says, now you need to get on with living. Who will you serve? How will you spend your time? What's inside of you, light or dark? What sort of life will you choose to live? And in many ways, you could see it's almost like Paul's pointing Timothy back to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' instructions. Live into this life. Live into the with God life. And Paul's telling us something here as well, that there's a spiritual battle. Who is it that you're going to serve? When um, we were still living at my great-grandma's house, this was several years ago, probably 2014, 2015, um, my uncle showed up out of the blue. It's very strange. I was not super close to him. And he came in and kind of talked a little bit. And then he, he, <laughs> he talked about how he had gone and seen the pyramids. He had some sort of medical issue that he was likely going to be passing away soon. Or, you know. But he'd made this last trip, gone and seen the pyramids. And then he said, can the church use some money? And I said, I, potentially, I don't, you know, I don't. Do you guys do different things? Like, do you help people? Is there stuff going on? I said, yeah, well, there's like, you know, there's the benevolence fund and we help people like transients coming through. We'll help them or maybe give them a bus ride or, you know, there's different stuff that we do and whatever, helping people out. And he said, yeah, okay, good. And so we pulled out, it was so old school. He like (laughs) reached in his pocket, pulls out this giant wad of cash, folded in half and then does like the, like, I was like, it was kind of a little bit like he wanted to show how much money he had, but he was trying to give me money. So I was like, yeah, okay. It was in my living room. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> anyway, he's just like, jute, jute, jute. And he pu- I don't remember how much he gave. I think he gave around 1000 to the church. And so he gives me this money that he, like, stuff. Like, I'm surprised it wasn't in his sock, right? He was just like, yeah, okay. Puts it in his pocket. And uh, he wanted to give some money, give some money to the church. And uh, actually, he, he ended up passing away. His uncle, Mike, I don't know if I ever told you guys this, but he gave a bunch of money to the church. Um, and then this is dad's brother. And then he passed away while we were at, in BC at school. Um, and I don't know, knowing Uncle Mike, I don't really know where he was with the Lord when he passed away. <laughs> he, lived a, he lived a life. And uh, he'd made money. He'd lost money. Here he was. He'd gone on trips. He went and saw the pyramids. He'd given some money to charity. Thinking back on this, there's, I was reminded of this because of this passage. There's a longing in his heart to sort of satisfy something there, right? There's a longing for something else, for someone else. There's a longing for God. And I wonder how often do our lives get caught up? I remember Uncle Mike thinking a lot about making the money. How often do our lives get caught up in, in exactly these sorts of things that Jesus talks about? Making the money, investing in the treasure here and now, uh, trying our best to, to sort of maybe give to charity because that's a good thing. That's fine. But, um, but missing out on what truly matters, right? And here Jesus is saying, don't, don't store up wealth for yourself if you're missing out on the most important treasure for eternity, which is, which is salvation, which is a life with God. And the call for us, too, is to embrace the gift of God's grace. This is where we find new life. As we head to the next section, this is the last section we're going to look at, verses 25 to 34. This is the, the, the birds and the lilies passage. This is all about our outlook on life. Jesus, he's using the birds and the flowers to talk about how God cares for and, and sustains his creation. The point is if God cares for the little things, little guys, little birdies, 
little flowers, which are going to die. How much more is he going to care for you? Of course, that makes sense if you think human beings have innate value. (laughs) If you don't, then that point's kind of lost. The point is we do have more value. We have an inherent value, greater than animals, greater than the flowers, because we're made in God's image. And that phrase is packed with meaning with all sorts of things that we could get into. But the, the most, one of the main things it signifies is that every human being has innate worth and value. And so if, if, if that is true, God cares for you so much. And if he cares for the little birds and the little flowers, he wants to look after you too. That whole idea is kind of the, the basis of our emphasis as Christians on the sanctity of human life, by the way. Not to touch on a whole big social issue. Um, I was asked, Wes Mills, our, our ACOP president, asked if I would help with a statement of faith project. And um, so I'm working through our statement of faith as a church and making sure we've got good Bible verses with it, kind of like working through it, you know. Do, do not change the statement of faith. It's like, don't, we're not changing it. It's in the Constitution. It takes forever to change it. But can you work on some stuff and just add some things, Bible verses? And so if people want to study it, they can kind of go through that. So like, yeah, great. So here I am working on it. And um, one of the things in our statement of faith has to do with marriage and I said, Wes, there's so many other social issues now today, things regarding abortion and euthanasia and all this stuff. Do you want me to include some more sentences about just social issues generally and sort of our stance as Christians? He said, yeah, good idea. So I've been thinking about, thinking about that as I come to this passage. God saying, you know, Jesus saying, God cares for you. You're worth it to him. You're valuable to him. You're made in his image. And all that that means protecting human life from conception to natural death. All that involves thinking about that, putting in passages like this next to those phrases in our Statement of Faith project. We have an innate, innate value. And Jesus' point here is, of course, you are worth infinitely more than you can possibly imagine. And even though we may struggle with all sorts of things and have all sorts of issues, God still loves us. If you think God provides for the birds and the flowers, he also asks us to trust him for the big issues. And there's lots. There's lots in life that can keep us anxious and preoccupied. There's our family conflicts. There's natural disasters. There's businesses closing and health crises and economic issues and all of that, all of that stuff, rising costs of rent and mortgage or whatever it might be. Those things are out of our control, but we can let God have our fear and choose instead to trust in him. What's your outlook on life? Are you anxious? Are you scattering around, worried about things? Or will you trust in God? Paul in Philippians 4 puts it this way. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. One of the questions uh, we ask in our Disciples Pathway series is, what do you need to surrender to God today? What's on your heart? What's in your mind? What's something in your life you need to give to him? And not just to ask that question, but then to also ask, what gift does Jesus want to give you in return? I think for many of us, It's letting go of our anxieties, our burdens, our worries. And instead embracing the gift of peace and trust that Jesus has for us.
which hits those famous words in Matthew 11, Jesus' words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. And in the book I was reading from Richard Foster, he quotes that passage. Then he puts it this way. He says this, It's impossible to take on the light yoke of Jesus if we're already strapped into the weighty harness of self-effort and willpower. Jesus is describing the kingdom of God at work in our daily lives, folks. How do we spend our time? What's your inner life? What's your outlook for life? Is it anxiety or is it trust? Who do you really serve at the end of the day? And I have some suggestions. How do we respond to this before we head to the table? One response can, might, can be, well, it's really hard to change. I'm used to being anxious about my life, and I'm used to sort of just doing what I want to do. Um, I don't really know if I want to follow Jesus, but like changing is, is difficult. Um, and I just want to say to that, sometimes we can say, I'm going to change. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to do the stuff. And then we fail, and we think we're terrible, and then we never pick it up again, right? Like there's kind of that cycle that can happen. Growing in life with Christ is not about trying harder. The gospel is not try and be better. The gospel is Christ has come to love you as a sinner, and he now gives you his life and his forgiveness and his salvation. You don't earn this by trying harder. But you are called to train in the life of Christ. You are called to make changes and to grow in it. When we simply try to be better... We're simply being self-serving. It's based on our effort, right? It's based on what I can do. But trying to train to come alongside Christ with what he wants to do in us is a working together. It's participating in him. And I'm reminded of of Paul in Philippians 2.13. He says, it's God who's at work in you, enabling you both the will and the work to do his good pleasure. God wants to give you the desire and the ability to live for him. You may be in a place where you don't have a desire to live for him, or it's very, very, very small. You kind of know you should, but you don't really know what all that will mean. But God wants to work in you the will to do his good pleasure. I think as we submit to the gracious movement of the Spirit, we find that this is actually life-giving as we step into life with God. It's not another list of rules. But it's actually giving up our self-interests and our own sinful impulses and saying, Jesus, would you come be the Lord of my life? Let me serve you. I want to walk with you. The other thing to keep in mind is that our spiritual formation growing in the life of Jesus, it's not through our own human effort. We don't produce the outcomes. God does. We simply set up our lives for God's grace to come and to work in a way that is, that, uh, is in sync with who God is. One way of thinking of it is like this. Imagine your life is like a garden. Um, I don't really garden. (laughs) I would like to. Again, don't have the time. But anyway, when you go to grow the thing, whatever it might be, you don't actually grow it, right? Like you set up the parameters for it to grow. So you make garden. You get... you. Do a soil thing. I don't know what you do. You put the stuff in the dirt. You know, you make it have more nitrogen. Maybe you take out nitrogen. I don't know. You put in the stuff. You make a giant fence so the deer can't eat any of it, right? It's electrocuted. There's a moat with lava, you know, because you want your tomatoes. And then you, 
you, you know, you set up things, you set up the parameters to make sure the thing grows. Dang it all, you know, no one will have this. But you don't control the sun and the wind and the rain. You don't do that. I mean, you water a little, right? You do your best. You can set up the parameters for the thing to grow, but the growth of the thing, the miracle that that thing somehow grows is actually completely beyond you. You set up the parameters to try and have it grow well. You fight off enemies, right? You take those deer out. You're like, no. Get out of here, you know? You say no. You set up things to help it grow. Water it. Love it. Sing to it. You know, those sorts of things. Gently. Hello. And then, you know, and you fight off the deer. You do that. It's the same in the Christian life. You don't make, you don't make it grow. God makes it grow. God's the one who's, who's doing the growth in you, but you can set up the parameters of your heart to help the thing grow or not. You can set up things in your life so that when the sun and the rain come, your heart is ready to grow. You can help fertilize the soil as you read the word and as you pray and as you spend time with people. Your, the soil of your heart is made ready for God to continue to grow you. You don't grow the thing but you set up the parameters so that God, by his spirit, can grow his life within you. Does that make sense? You do not bring sun. You maybe water the thing, but you need it to rain, right? Uh, one of my professors at school, he used to say, uh, reading your Bible, doing your devotions, is like watering uh, the soil of your heart with a watering can, but coming to church is like having a rain. You can't just go through the whole Christian life watering it. You need the rains. In the same way, you can't just go week to week with rain. You need to water in between. You need both. The whole idea is this, though. In all of these ways, who are you serving? What's the inner quality of your life? Are you anxious about life or are you trusting God? All of those are questions about setting up the parameters of the garden of your heart. Do you need to work against a sinful temptation? Maybe you need to build the deer fence, right? Because this temptation continually comes and robs what God wants to do in my heart. So maybe I need to fight that deer, carn, starn it all, and do something about it, right? Or maybe my soil is incredibly dry and nutrient deficient, but I need to pour into it so that as God does his work, I am ready to receive. Do you see how it's, it's not human-directed effort? It's still God who does the growth, but he calls me to come alongside and participate with him in the growth he wants to do. Um, if you just throw seeds in the dirt... They may well grow. I've done this. They may well grow, but they won't grow as well as if you try to do your part to have them grow well, right? Like they'll kind of figure themselves out, which is kind of miraculous. But the idea is you also do your part alongside what God is doing. And that's what Paul says here in this passage. It's God who's at work in you. God does the work of your Christian growth. But he's enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God does the work, but he also calls you to have a part in it. It's easy to think a lot about how do we kind of do this? Like, okay, how do I do it? Like, what's the technique? Uh, in the previous section, which we didn't dwell on too long, when Jesus talked about giving and praying and fasting, um, he doesn't actually talk about anything to do with technique. He doesn't say, pray this much, read this much Bible every day, 
Um, you know, when you fast, it has to be this much, maybe water, maybe juice, maybe spinach, maybe you make a smoothie. You know, he doesn't go into any of that. It's just like what Jesus is concerned about in those spiritual practices is what's the motivation of your heart, not the technique by which you do it. And I think it's the same true here. What's the motivation of your heart? Do you want to grow in the with God life? God says, I'll dwell with you. Do you want to dwell with me? Do we want to grow in that? Do we want to set up the parameters of our hearts so that his work in us can grow or not? Or not. I wanted to end this sermon um, with a poem I wrote. I hope that's okay. Uh, it, was, it was meditating. This, I wrote this a few months ago. On, on the call of God and the ways we resist him and hopefully eventually give ourselves to him. And then we're going to pray and we're going to head to the table. But this, is, uh, this poem's called Invitation. It says, Come, you call me, all you weary, all you heavy with sin and fear. Find in me the one who takes the dreary sorrow and with new love draws you near. I hear that call. I know that voice, and my deepest longing wants to heed. And yet I choose instead again the vice, my hate, my lust, my anger, my greed. And still you call me. From up that road, your voice rings, sings above that siren swell. You at last unclasp this burdened load and embrace me with, now all will be well. Who am I to know such invitation? This is grace alone, gift of new creation. May we take time for what matters most, our life in Jesus. May we fight the good fight. May we serve him first and foremost. And may we trust him with our anxieties as we grow in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you continually call us to yourself, that you invite us more and more into a deeper life with you. And I pray, Lord, as we consider these questions, how do we spend our time? What is our priority in life? What's the inner quality of my life? Who do I serve? Who's my master? What's my outlook in life? Am I anxious or am I trusting? Lord, at the end of the day, the answers to these questions are found in our life with you, in a relationship with you. And so I pray, Father, that as we consider your word this morning, that you would stir in us a deeper desire to follow you. Lord, to come alongside what you are doing in our lives, to be patient, to be expectant, hopeful. Lord, I pray for those of us here who are going through great difficulty, and it's easy to be anxious about tomorrow. Lord, you call us to trust in you. You call us to lay down the burdens that we make for ourselves and to embrace your easy yoke, the light yoke. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to do just that. We lay down this morning the things on our hearts, Lord, the worries that we have, we lay down the struggles we have, Lord, the, the times that we, uh, we don't follow you. The desires we have sometimes to seek some other Lord or Master. And so, Lord, I pray 
that as we open our hearts and come to this table, that this would be a place of receiving your forgiveness in your life. That this is a reminder as we eat the bread and drink this cup, you gave your life for me because you love me. And each one of us here, Lord, you love, you gave your life for. We matter to you. We're worth it to you. And so, Lord, as we come and as we eat and drink, stir in our hearts, Lord, a deeper desire to make you first in our lives. Help us to see you at work in our everyday lives, Lord, to see it as an act of worship. And I pray that as we head from this place, having been fed by you and welcomed by you at the table, that, Lord, we would realize we are called to bring your life and your hope to bear in those around us. So, Lord, encourage us. Call us to yourself. We thank you for your forgiveness and your life. And, Lord, for those who are deeply hurting, we pray for a deep sense of your comfort and your peace this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to